Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Three, two, one, let's jam. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. In this episode, I speak with Grug, an anonymous MEV searcher on the Ethereum blockchain. If that sentence made no sense to you, I promise this will be a fun episode. To begin the conversation, Grug explains the basic architecture of the Ethereum blockchain and how its structure allows for the emergence of MEV strategies like sandwich attacks, arbitrage, and liquidations. He discusses some of the criteria he looks for when identifying a profitable MEV strategy and provides examples of some of the long tail approaches he's deployed in the past, as well as the risks associated with them. We discuss the pro-cyclical nature of some of these strategies, the role of retail flow, and the edge in being able to deploy rapidly. Grug also provides his thoughts on the impact of Alt-L1s and L2s on MEV, airdrop strategies, and the end game of MEV if Ethereum infrastructure becomes too centralized. Please enjoy my conversation with Grug. Grug, welcome to the show. Excited to have you here. We are just going to do something a little different than we've done in the past. We're going to dive into the world of MEV, which is, I think, for anyone coming from a traditional finance background, hopefully going to be a pretty exciting and unique look at strategies in crypto that maybe they've never heard of. So, I appreciate you joining and being willing to do this. I know there, there's a meme out there in crypto Twitter about, you know, Grug, teach me Mev. So I'm, I'm glad you're actually coming on and maybe you can teach me Mev here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully I can be of some assistance in that regard. So I know we want to be careful about providing too much information. Your anonymity is important to you. So I do want to maybe start with a little bit of background, what you're willing to share about how you got into crypto and MEV specifically. Yeah, absolutely. So my journey into crypto kind of started in 2017, but back then I was more just dabbling and behaving like a very unsophisticated market participant. I was speculating on all sorts of shit coins on Binance and things like Siacoin and other crap like that. It was very much a hobby back then, and I pretty much just lost money. And after the market crash, I didn't really look at crypto again for several years. I worked in what I guess people in crypto today would call Web2, specifically in the machine learning space. But I ended up pretty burnt out on the tech industry 
and was just doing some boring web dev contracting stuff in the interim for a while before I ended up going full bore into crypto and and MEV after the fact. So yeah, after the big crash in 2017 and abandoning crypto, I determined I was a pretty bad speculator. And to be completely honest, I really still am, although maybe a little bit better than before. I did have a decently sized ETH bag I bought near the top back then, but was too stubborn to sell that I ended up holding all the way down and back up again. So I guess I managed to squeeze a little bit of upside out of that. But when I really got into crypto, though, was near the tail end of DeFi summer. Somewhat by happenstance, I was just browsing Twitter and I stumbled across a tweet by some guy who had made a killing farming this Wi-Fi token. And that kind of sparked my initial interest. So I decided I would give it another try, but this time I'd throw myself at it in an uncompromising manner. So I made this my Grug Twitter account because that's kind of where... I intuited that everyone who actually knew anything about crypto hung out and operated on. And I started aggressively using DeFi products like Uniswap and shitposting on Twitter and finding my way into Discord servers with like-minded folks. Uh, Yeah, So I was determined to lock myself away in my attic and make life-changing money along the way like so many of the people that I had observed on Twitter had during DeFi summer previously. And my center of attention was primarily on communities with a focus on development and where most of the members were engineers. I figured since I had an engineering background, surrounding myself with others who did too, or were at least decently technical, so to speak, would be the best route to quickly hone my skills. And far and above the most impactful community I found my way into was FBC, which is, of course, where we initially met. And FBC was chock full of a bunch of super smart and terminally online individuals. And it seemed like just the place that I was looking for. And for a very long time, my daily routine basically consisted of waking up, hanging out in FBC all day and drinking from the fire hose of information there. So yeah, a lot of the FBC alums actually also went on to start protocols or businesses in the crypto space that ended up being super successful. I would say probably the the best example there would be Gem, which was an NFT aggregator that I invested in and that very close friend of mine founded that sold to OpenSea in 2022. So that was a bit of how I stumbled into crypto. And relatively early on during my time in FBC, I ended up reading an article, I think it was on Cointelegraph, that someone posted about MEV and it caught my interest. Prior to this, I'd just been toying around learning about structured products in the ribbon finance server on options trading, and I was pretty unfocused. I distinctly remember the moment that really sparked my MEV journey being watching one of Robert Miller, who is a steward over at Flashbots, one of his early Twitch streams, which was kind of just a walkthrough of a GitHub repository on a simple arbitrage bot. And after that, Robert and I began chatting about all sorts of things MEV, and he sort of took me under his wing. And this is pretty much where I started to more exclusively focus on MEV. I would say the zero-sum aspect and it kind of being a explicitly player versus player game was what was very attractive to me. You know, I used to play a lot of chess, and I've always been hyper-competitive. So I guess it sort of makes sense that that's where I ended up within the cryptosphere. One of the things that I make an assumption with with this podcast is that listeners have a general 
finance background. We don't go into standard definitions. I assume they sort of have that sort of CFA level masters in finance type knowledge. But my guess is there's a lot of people who are listening right now that come from a traditional finance background whose head might be swimming a bit, right? You're throwing out things like DeFi Summer, Wi-Fi Token, Uniswap, Flashbots, all of which they may have never heard of and have no context for. So let me start by saying to those listeners, hold on, we're going to get there. By the end of this conversation, you're going to know what all that means. But with that in mind, Grug, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of table setting if you can for me, because I think for the rest of this conversation, it makes sense. We have to sort of start from basics. And so I want to start with the most basic question, which is at a high level, can you explain how the Ethereum blockchain works? Yeah, absolutely. It's probably a pretty in-depth topic, but I'll try to give a good overview and one that appropriately sets the stage for diving into more MEV-specific discussions. So Ethereum's essentially a blockchain with a computer inside of it. The computer is called the Ethereum Virtual Machine or the EVM, and everyone who's a participant in this network collectively agrees on the state of the EVM at any given time. So anyone can make a request to perform some sort of arbitrary computation on the network, like making a transaction or deploying a smart contract, which is the foundation that all these DeFi apps are built on top of. And whenever someone does, they pay some amount of ETH or rather gas, which is just a denomination of ETH to the network. And one of the most important actors involved in Ethereum and in any blockchain are block producers. This would be validators now and previously miners before Ethereum's semi-recent transition to proof of stake. So validators propose and validate new blocks of transactions. This ensures consensus among participants in the network and also secures it. And probably one of the most important factors with regards to MEV is that validators have free reign to order transactions however they want within a block. So when someone submits a transaction to the network, it's also not instantly included in a block. The transaction gets held in this waiting area or buffer zone that is called the mempool, and the mempool is publicly viewable. So while transactions sit in the mempool, anyone can see it, including searchers who are sort of an actor in this MEV ecosystem. And validators look in the mempool for transactions that pay the highest gas fee, and they then include them in the block. So it's not really like a first in, first out system like in TradFi, there's sort of a gas auction that's occurring here. And new blocks are created every 12 seconds as well. So the basic breakdown here is that block producers create and confirm blocks. Blocks are composed of a sequence of transactions based on fees. And block producers possess the ability to order these transactions however they want within said block. So in the context of that description, can you explain what MEV actually is? Yeah. So this is still a rather hotly debated topic. I mean, there have been a lot of efforts to come up with a more formalized definition of what MEV is. The acronym has shifted from standing for minor extractable value to maximal extractable value as activities that might not have been classified as MEV at some point in the past now are, or at least considered sort of MEV adjacent. So we don't muddy the waters here too much. I'll stick with a more rigid definition, which is also the one that I believe Flashbots uses or similar to it. And that would be that MEV refers to additional profit aside from block rewards and transaction fees that a miner or now validator can make by auctioning off transaction ordering rights in the blocks that they mine. 
more specifically prioritizing or entirely excluding certain types of transactions. And this will make more sense when we jump into what Flashbots is, but I think that's a decent broad definition in my opinion. Yeah, so let's go right in there. You've mentioned Flashbots a couple of times. What is Flashbots and, and why is it so important, at least historically, to MEV? Sure. So before I get into what Flashbots is and what they do, I think it's important to establish the types of participants in the MEV ecosystem that make this whole sort of grand digital dance work. And these would be users, searchers, and validators. So users generate the flow that creates the value to be extracted. Searchers hunt for profitable MEV opportunities and build the bots to submit profitable transactions to the network. And validators confirm the users and the searchers' transactions. And I think walking through the evolution of Flashbots and MEV over the past several years would probably be helpful here too. So prior to Flashbots and the advent of private mempools, most MEV opportunities involved searchers competing by sending multiple transactions in, in real time, often triggered by other searchers chasing the same opportunity. There was really no way to effectively communicate with block producers how to granularly express transaction ordering preferences, and Flashbots changed this. And the reason Flashbots exists is because during the second half of 2020 and the start of 2021, Big spikes in Ethereum usage brought with them a bunch of negative externalities that were sort of incurred onto users and were caused by MEV extraction. I think PGA bots are a good example here. They caused just mountains of spam and transaction reverts that led to network and chain congestion, which made gas fees become artificially inflated and block space artificially scarce. So Flashbots saw that there was an inefficient communication channel between bots and miners for order preference, which was leading to all of these negative externalities incurred on to users, and they set out to fix this problem. But ultimately, at its core, Flashbots is a research organization that's focused on mitigating the negative externalities MEV incurs on users. Really, though, Flashbots builds MEV infrastructure. I would personally say they mostly build software for validators, but we'll be charitable here and say that they build MEV infrastructure for searchers on the ecosystem in general. Their primary product and the ones that see the most use are Flashbots Auction and MEV Boost. So Flashbots Auction basically establishes a private communication channel between searchers and validators for communicating transaction ordering preferences within a block. And Flashbots auction, is a, it's a sealed bid auction, so you can't see other searchers' bids. And the basic flow of how a searcher interacts with Flashbots is that they build a bot to identify or capture an MEV opportunity. The bot finds that opportunity and submits a bundle along with a bribe. If their bribe wins the Flashbots auction, their transactions are included on chain, and they capture the opportunity. Because MEV opportunities are zero-sum, the more competitors there are trying to go after a given opportunity, the greater percentage of a searcher's profit ends up given away to the validator via the auction. And Flashbots Auction is built into MEV Boost, which is the software that validators run and is Flashbots implementation of proposer builder separation on Ethereum, which we can get into at a later date. But I think the last thing that would be instructive here is exploring an example of how a searcher might use Flashbots. So 
say a user makes a trade on a decentralized exchange like Uniswap, and he's trading some very illiquid shitcoin. Because the liquidity for the pair is not very deep, the user has to set his slippage high on Uniswap in order to make sure that his order gets filled. This leaves him vulnerable to something called a sandwich attack. So a searcher who's built a bot sees this user's transaction sitting in the mempool, and he submits a bundle to Flashbots to sandwich the user. A bundle is just one or more transactions that are grouped together and get executed in the order they're provided, and they can include both the searcher's and the user's transactions. In this case, the searcher wants to sandwich the user, so he places a large buy before the user's transaction, which increases both the slippage and the price of the token that the user's trading. He puts the user's transaction in the middle, which drives the price of the token up even further and gives the user a worse quote. And then he places his transaction, his sell transaction immediately after it, and then pockets the profit as a result. It's generally considered a very malicious form of MEV. And unlike traditional finance, just on that last point there, because it's all done via smart contracts, the searchers can actually calculate precisely how much they can move price with the transaction and and optimize the trade, right? Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things you mentioned there was this idea of proposer builder separation. Can you explain what that is? Yeah. Yeah. So prior to Ethereum's transition to proof of stake, block proposers built the blocks and proposed the blocks. And at the protocol level, they still technically do. But now a majority of validators run Flashbot's MEV Boost client, which essentially separates proposing and building into two different actors. So validators running MEV Boost sell their block space to these specialized third parties called block builders, who then collect and sequence transactions to produce a block and pass it on to them. And block builders want to produce a block that maximizes fees collected in the form of priority fees and MEV. And this sort of just leads to the most efficient the most efficient way to produce a block. And it also prevents MEV from centralizing the validator set and mitigates against censorship, which is generally a concern as most people regard MEV as a centralizing force. So if the block building competition is very fierce, builders are required to bid up as their bid approaches total revenue. And this reduces their net income while increasing the net income of the validators in general, which makes it harder for builders to centralize their potential percentage of total ETH staked. Previously, validators could use MEV to buy more validators to have a greater chance at extracting MEV and then use the revenue to hire better searchers, et cetera, et cetera, which is sort of like a centralizing risk. And on the other side, separating builders and proposers from one another makes it much harder for builders to censor transactions because all sorts of different complex inclusion criteria can be added that ensure censorship isn't taking place before the block ends up getting proposed. You mentioned sandwich attacks as one example of an MEV strategy. Can we maybe take a step back and move to a higher level? I'd love for you to talk through maybe the topology of MEV strategies, the general way you would consider categorizing them and maybe provide an example of each. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the best example of a long tail distribution is generally the most accurate. So on the left side of the distribution, we have the MEV that occurs the most. So this would be like sandwiching 
arbitrage, and liquidations. And these categories, you know, encompass the most MEV that occurs on chain. Some people would probably lump StatArb in here too, which has become a larger and larger percentage of total MEV so far. But to keep things simple, we'll we'll stick with these sort of big three categories. And then on the right side of the distribution, we have a ton of different long tail strategies, which encompass just a wide range of activity where there's much less competition. There's a lot fewer searchers going after these opportunities. So sandwiching, as I touched on before, is probably the most malicious and detested form of MEV. And it occurs when a searcher buys an asset immediately before a targeted user's transaction and then sells that same asset immediately after. And one thing that, as you talked about, that's interesting when it comes to sandwich attacks is that you can use the pricing formulas detailed in the Uniswap docs to calculate the exact price impact that any order will have on any given trading pair. And this is a pretty important advantage that sandwich attacks have over front running in TradFi, where calculating slippage is totally probabilistic. So because individual trades on decentralized exchanges are all deterministic, searchers can derive and calculate the optimal trade size to front run a purchase with, which allows them to extract the maximal amount of profit from any given sandwich attack. Most people view sandwich attacks, as I said, as totally exploitative. The broad opinion is that they're parasitic and they prey on uninformed retail users who have little to no concept of the blockchain's underlying mechanisms. But there is another take on the opposite side of them being a net positive or at least neutral to the ecosystem. And the take here is kind of twofold. The first point being that sandwich attacks incentivize protocols towards better mechanism design, like MEV shielding via private transaction channels, which I generally agree with. And the more niche take here is that when a user submits a swap via an automated market maker like Uniswap, they're declaring their maximum willingness to pay. And so if they get filled at the better price than their declared willingness to pay, there exists this consumer surplus and thus the absence of a Nash equilibrium. So the sandwicher is actually moving the system towards the Nash equilibrium so that the market meets the consumer's maximum willingness to pay while also extracting some value for themselves. And in doing so, the sandwicher is generating more utility and reaching the Nash equilibrium where no other action would produce additional utility given the current state of the system and the declared economic preferences of the participants. Not sure I really agree with this take, though, because I don't necessarily believe that users are actually declaring their maximum willingness to pay, and they're likely just ignorant or sort of being led astray by UI and UX design on some of these on the front ends for these decentralized exchanges. My stance on sandwich attacks is a bit more of a moral argument. I think that they are fine or at least tolerable because crypto is just the biggest and greatest casino ever created. And in the end, almost all of the activities that people are engaging in on chain are zero sum anyway. And the second type of MEV would be arbitrage. And the concept here is pretty straightforward and one that your listeners or anybody with a TradFi background will probably be the most familiar with. So we're essentially moving money from one market to another and we're pocketing the spread as the profit. Arbitrage on Ethereum functions the same way it does in TradFi with one crucial difference. Transactions on Ethereum are all atomic, which means that either all the conditions are met or the transaction reverts. So in TradFi, when you're executing a multi-hop arb, 
you run the risk of the market moving against your position while you're halfway through your ARP, which would force you to sell at a loss. With the existence of atomic execution on Ethereum, not only does every leg of your hop execute and be guaranteed to execute one after another, but you can record in your code your initial starting balance. And at the end of execution, you can assert that you want your ending balance to be greater than your starting balance. So then if the assertion fails, the smart contract will revert and it it basically undoes all the trades made and leaves you with your starting balance. So this means that atomic ARBs are effectively riskless. And another one of the ways that searchers make money via ARBs is called backrunning. In this case, you want your transaction to land right behind someone else. So let's say Bob buys X token on decentralized exchange A. When he does so, he moves the bonding curve of the AMM that he's trading on. And this means that the purchased token is more valuable now, while the token that Bob just sold is less valuable. So a searcher, Alice, who's back running his transaction, can then utilize this imbalance that Bob has just created to perform arbitrage with another decentralized exchange. So Alice buys the sold token from Bob for very little and sells it on another decentralized exchange for a premium. And that premium minus the transaction fees that Alice incurs ends up being her profit. The third type of MEV in the big three would be liquidations. So just like in TradFi, in DeFi, there are lending markets except because we don't have the state to chase people down if they run away with the money, all the loans in DeFi are over collateralized. And at their most basic level, DeFi lending protocols consist of users borrowing assets against some amount of collateral that they deposit into the protocol. But the value of a user's deposited collateral can drop sharply and lending protocols need to ensure that all the outstanding loans are always fully backed or else they end up risking insolvency. So in the event that the value of the collateral drops below a certain threshold, the protocol actually lets anyone liquidate the user's position. So to incentivize liquidations, these protocols pay a flat fee, or they allow liquidators to keep a cut of the collateral being liquidated. And the liquidator needs to repay some or all of the loan amount to the protocol, at which point the protocol transfers the borrower's deposited collateral to the liquidator. So the value of the deposited collateral ends up always being greater than the value of the loan because otherwise there would be no economic incentive for a searcher to liquidate the loan. And while you can liquidate a loan by just repaying the debt from your wallet, it ends up being quite capital intensive. Like you'd need a million dollars to liquidate a million dollar loan, of course. And so you can expose yourself to losses if the value of the collateral you receive continues to drop. So lots of searchers instead leverage something called flash loans to front the necessary capital to liquidate the position and sell all the received collateral and then repay the flash loan while keeping the extra profit for themselves. And a flash loan essentially is just a tool uh, that allows someone to borrow any given amount of assets available as long as they repay them in the same block for a small fee. And then the fourth type of MEV, which sits, you know, sort of on the narrow side of the long tail would be, these are opportunities that fall outside of the scope of the majority of MEV activity on chain. And these would include like sniping a fat fingered listing for a valuable NFT, like a CryptoPunk, uh, as well as like a litany of other strategies. Given the 
breadth of potential MEV strategies. Can you share your criteria for identifying what a profitable MEV strategy might be? Sure. So when I'm looking to identify a profitable MEV strategy, I generally ask myself three main questions. And these would be, where is the dumb flow, also known as the retail flow? Where is the concentration of competitors the smallest? And do I have an asymmetric advantage? So since our shop generally focuses on long tail strategies, this is a bit of a different approach to those that perform a lot of atomic or statistical arbitrage probably, but these are the things I look for. Can you provide an example of some of the long tail strategies you've pursued in the past? Sure thing. I, of course, won't talk about strategies that are currently generating profit for us, but I'm happy to discuss those that are deprecated at this point and where the alpha has totally decayed to give your listeners a a picture of kind of how this all works in practice. So circling back to the criteria I outlined before, I think highlighting a strategy that ticked all of my boxes and proved to be one of the more successful ones that we have pursued would probably be the most insightful. And this would be NFT sniping. So in the early days, the NFT bull run, there was such an abundance of dumb flow and block space was in such high demand that lots of users couldn't get in on these initial sales for NFT mints, and they would be forced to buy on secondary markets after the fact. And as a result, most of the higher quality NFT drops, they would mint for around 0.1, 0.2 ETH, and then they'd immediately sell for many multiples. So we would basically bot these mints via flashbots and buy hundreds of NFTs at once and then sell them soon afterwards. You would think that you'd want to dump most of these things as soon as possible, And if you're doing this today, you really would. And even then, you might still lose money because the dumb flow in the NFT space is largely gone. But when everything was just going up and we first started doing this, we would actually just sell as quickly as possible. But we soon realized that a lot of the inventory we unloaded quickly just kept going up. So we stopped doing that and we started holding them for longer periods of time and continued to make even more money. So that's one example. And another strategy that we've done very well with is what I would kind of term searcher versus searcher strategies. So running MEV bots involves deploying smart contracts on chain. And like any piece of software, these contracts are occasionally deployed with vulnerabilities. So if you can find and exploit those vulnerabilities, you can basically trick a bot into handing its entire balance over to you. Sometimes this is a couple thousand dollars, Sometimes it's much, much more. It just depends on who's running the bot and how well capitalized their operation is. Some of these long tail opportunities seem to appear really sporadically. So one example you gave was fat fingering a listing for CryptoPunk. Well, recently someone listed the sale of a Bored Ape NFT that had associated staking rewards. An MEV searcher bought the ape, liquidated the staking rewards, and sold the ape in a single transaction, capturing more than $60,000 in those rewards. By the way, I'm not saying that person was you, but I'm also not saying it was not you. (laughs) But these sort of fat finger events seem to be pretty rare. You could build the searcher bot, and you could just never get a hit, or it could miss that one opportunity per quarter that shows up. So my question to you is, do you think the edge in long tail strategies is in depth within your strategy or deploying a breadth of strategies? I would say definitely in deploying a breadth of strategies. Like that's generally been our conclusion. If you're going to pursue long tail opportunities that only come around once in a blue moon, 
you should probably pursue as many as possible simultaneously so that your hit rate is as high as possible. One thing I will say, though, is it's often the case that the rarity of these opportunities actually ends up having some benefit. And this is because most searchers won't waste their time spinning up infrastructure for a bunch of them. There are several very profitable opportunities that have been captured where there were almost no competitors or absolutely no competitors. And a good example here that comes to mind off the top of my head would be last year, there was a user who fat fingered a global offer on an NFT marketplace that was rather new called Looks Rare for this collection, Moonbirds. They basically accidentally placed a bid for 240 ETH for any Moonbird when the floor was actually 40 ETH. So this made it possible for a searcher to buy a Moonbird off the floor, sell it into their offer, and pocket the difference. And as far as I know, there was no competition at all in this instance, and the searcher walked away with around 200 ETH. So some of these long-tail strategies seem pretty capital inefficient, right? What you just mentioned, that searcher needed to have 40 ETH at their fingertips, but you're just waiting for the right moment to execute, and that moment might not show up. So why don't you see more searcher bots employ flash loans in that sort of situation? So some of the time, it's just not feasible to use a flash loan based on the strategy being executed on. So like if you're minting a ton of NFTs via flash bots and botting some sort of NFT mint, and you want to then go dump those NFTs on OpenSea or Blur right afterwards, you can't utilize a flash loan because you end up with a bunch of JPEGs, which you obviously can't actually pay the flash loan back with. And then the other reason would be that flash loans are less common would be that most of the good searchers have inventory now and flash loans are inherently gas inefficient, which means that you're less likely to win the flashbots auction and capture the opportunity you're chasing if you're using a flash loan. Now, backrunning isn't really a long tail strategy, but lots of backrunners do still use flash loans as far as I know, but well-capitalized teams will avoid them if they can. It's better to use your own inventory if possible. What do you see as being the main risks to these long tail strategies? Why don't you see a lot of other searchers competing in this space? So other searchers do still compete for long tail opportunities. They're just less competitors than for things like atomic arbs or sandwiches. And there's a number of reasons that they're less competitive. Some are non-atomic, for example. So you end up holding risk, like you could end up holding 100 tubby cats, for instance. And if you don't have, you know, the best knowledge of like the NFT markets, you're worried that all of those tubby cats will go to zero before you can sell them. This was less of a problem during peak mania, but it's a large problem now. Like most searchers are not super clued in to NFT markets. They don't want to waste their time staying plugged in to what the latest and greatest drop is. This was actually a distinct advantage that we had over other teams when we were actively botting tons of drops. As you know, based on some of our prior interactions, I keep very up to date with the NFT ecosystem, or at least I did for some time. So that was a huge aid to us there. These long tail opportunities also seem pretty cyclical. You've mentioned a few times one of the primary drivers being retail flow. I'm curious how you manage the opportunity cost of developing a strategy versus the risk that the cycle is going to end before you can even deploy it. Yeah, this is definitely a problem we've run into. And we have had bots that we wasted our time on only to find that 
the return on investment wasn't worth the effort expended on building and deploying the strategy. In terms of managing opportunity cost, we generally scope out the expected value of a given strategy versus the amount of development time that we think it will take to get it up and running. But this is obviously not a precise science and we still, you know, miss sometimes as well. A little anecdotal story there. I think I accidentally bumped into you while you were developing one of those bots with a friend in real time over voice chat in the FBC Discord server. You guys were trying to mint, I think it was the Times cover NFT, and you were building the bot like minutes before the mint was supposed to go live, and you didn't know whether it was going to work or not, and you just said, screw it, we'll go for it. And there was quite a bit of capital at stake there. So I think it sort of shows, I think you're probably more buttoned up now, but those early days, there was a little bit of flying by the seat of your pants, perhaps, to, to take advantage of those cyclical opportunities. Yes, yes, absolutely. There are still examples of times like that where sometimes we just hear about something, you know, a couple hours before, and maybe we don't have all of the infrastructure up and running already. And so, yeah, that's still a very common occurrence where it's sometimes we only have three or four hours and it's go time. And, you know, a lot of the times it works, but some of the time it doesn't. We spent a lot of this conversation talking about Ethereum-based MEV so far, a big part of the last cycle was alternative L1s. So AVAX or Solana or the emergence of L2s that are trying to make Ethereum or other L1s more efficient. How does the emergence of these alt L1s or L2s change the opportunity set for MEV searchers? Yeah, so I'll preface this answer by saying that we don't do a lot of searching off of Ethereum. We did do a ton of stuff on AVAX for a while, but the chain's relatively dead now. And so this is one of the domains I know probably less about. But basically, each new chain adds to the MEV opportunity set because the markets and the participants on them tend to be pretty inefficient at first. So there are fewer people that understand the intricacies of each chain, and these intricacies can have a big impact on MEV opportunities and strategies. So yeah, generally when a new chain emerges, as long as the flow is actually there, it's a gold mine at first for those that dive into it. And this was kind of what we found with AVAX, although the timeline was not very long there. The more complex the chain is, the longer the alpha tends to last. And then as time goes on, competitors see the profits that are being made and they move in and they make the market more efficient. So at one point in the summer of 2021, there was this backrunner that made roughly $30 million in less than two months on BSC. And today that same bot maybe makes like $5,000 a day because competition significantly reduced his edge. I think that's probably a good example of the cycle of MEV on relatively new chains. Given that MEV profits tend to be correlated with retail flow, and retail flow has abated quite a bit. What sort of strategies have attracted your attention in 2023? Yeah, so this is absolutely correct. And as I said earlier, the number one question I tend to ask myself when I'm pursuing an opportunity uh, or looking for one is where's the dumb flow? And as the amount of dumb flow or retail flow decreases, the amount of value available to be extracted also decreases. And so in terms of stuff that we've been doing lately and strategies that have attracted our attention, I would say primarily like PVPing with other MEV bots. These are the searcher versus searcher strategies I touched on earlier, as well as farming airdrops, which I don't think I would really classify as MEV, 
but is probably somewhat MEV adjacent. What skills do you think are necessary to be a successful MEV searcher? I would probably break them down into three different categories. So you need to understand how Ethereum works at a low level and have a good handle on smart contracts. You need to understand how DeFi protocols work. This includes things like automated market makers or decentralized exchanges, lending markets, things like that, because these are basically the building blocks that make the MEV possible. And you need to have a good grasp on math, computer science, and economics. And obviously, you need to be a good software engineer. And I would add one more on the long tail route, if that's the direction you decide to go, that you need to be good at rapidly identifying new opportunities, moving quickly, and not falling down optimization rabbit holes, because you're going to need to jump from strategy to strategy very often. Taking a quick tangent, it seems like airdrops have been all the rage lately. And I know that's another area you've been quite successful. You actively participated in the Blur airdrop as well as did quite well recently in the Arbitrum airdrop. First, can you explain what an airdrop is to folks who are listening that have no idea? And then can you explain your general philosophy in terms of finding and maximizing airdrop opportunities? Is it something that you can do systematically or is this something that has to be done by hand? Yeah, absolutely. So an airdrop is an event where a crypto protocol gives out tokens to users. Generally, this is based on prior use of their product and it's sort of a method of bootstrapping community as well as instantiating governance. And governance is basically where users with a given amount of tokens can use these tokens to vote in proposals by other users or the protocol themselves. And this kind of ties into the whole decentralization narrative of DeFi. And in terms of like strategies, I want to tread a little carefully here and not reveal too much alpha because sibling airdrops is a strategy I see with a much longer time horizon than, you know, other MEV opportunities, but I can speak to it somewhat. My general philosophy in terms of finding airdrop opportunities is that protocols that are well-funded by top-tier VCs and capture a large amount of flow or are expected to capture a large amount of flow land near the top of my list. So things like layer ones, layer twos, bridges, or just protocols in general that are very hyped up on Twitter and as a consequence have a pretty good user base. When it comes to maximizing opportunity and most importantly, not being excluded or identified as a civil attacker, we take the approach of making all our accounts look like a regular DeFi user, avoiding cross-contamination, like not commingling funds, things like that. And a lot of this can be done systematically, although early on, we did almost all of it by hand, and it was incredibly arduous. I probably can't speak to it too much more than that, or no, because I tip my hand a little bit, but that's a good general overview, I think. For a lot of the atomic MEV strategies, the opportunity math is fairly straightforward, as we discussed a little bit earlier. And so the game seems much more likely to be played out in auction theory. I know this is a place in traditional finance, for example, trading desk competing for flow, where machine learning has actually been employed. Curious if you think machine learning is going to play a role in MEV going forward. So at least for the foreseeable future, not really. We've actually utilized some ML-based techniques with some of the searching we've done. But diving into that as it is something we did that was pretty niche. Don't know if I could touch on it without revealing 
far too much alpha. So I'll just say that there are some use cases, but they're pretty rare. And most searchers are not leveraging any sort of ML from what I've heard of. And in TradFi, you know, most of the ML type stuff that's being done, it's just kind of like people running a lot of regressions. I don't know if it's like the complex ML work that's maybe being done at somewhere like OpenAI or other like big, large scale AI companies. Do you think MEV is a net positive or a net negative for the Ethereum blockchain? And if it is a negative, do you think it's something that can ultimately be solved for? So I think there's a lot of nuance to this answer. Things like sandwich attacks and front running are a net negative for the user, whereas things like arbitrage are probably a positive, help even out user quotes across exchanges. So some MEV is good and some is bad. Overall, though, I would say MEV is a positive for a blockchain security budget because it disincentivizes validator unstaking for things like yield farming by actually increasing the block subsidy. And it allows for chains with no block rewards at all to be reliably secure and makes markets just more efficient overall. So in terms of solving MEV, though, my take is that it's a bit like trying to solve for gravity. To me, MEV is an emergent property that's inherent to distributed consensus. So no, it can't really be solved for in the sense that it can be eliminated. However, you can absolutely reduce the negative externalities inherent to MEV, which is basically Flashbot's chief goal. What happens to MEV if infrastructure becomes more centralized? For example, what's the end game if, if Flashbots or Lido end up controlling all the validators? Yeah, so Flashbots won't ever end up controlling all the validators per se, but all the validators or the vast majority of them will probably inevitably run MEV Boost. Lido is more concerning, though, because of the inherent network effects of staking derivatives. They could theoretically gobble up a huge majority of the total validator share. And if Lido has all the validators, they could extract all or most of the MEV and further boost their staking rewards and use that revenue to hire the best searchers to extract more MEV and so on. And there are, have been a lot of people who have raised these concerns about Lido and tried to curb the amount of ETH that they've been gradually acquiring. There are some competitors like Rocket Pool and other protocols that have their own like liquid staking derivatives. But at the moment, Lido is definitely in the lead. All right, Grug, last question of the episode for you. It's the same question I'm asking every guest. Every guest chose a tarot card that informs the design of their cover, and you chose the Magician. I'm curious, what drew you to that card? Oh, I chose the Magician because I think a lot of people think MEV is a little bit like technical wizardry or on-chain magic, and so it seemed the most fitting to me. It kind of gets mythologized or has this like bit of mystique to it within the crypto community. And it just seemed like the best fit. Well, Grug, I appreciate you coming on and teaching me Mev. <laughs> Thanks so much. It was great. Very much appreciated. it.